August 1967, Outlaws Bonnie and Clyde loom large on the big screen. You try to listen in, but there's something else coming down the line. In Hunter S. Thompson's first book, the Hells Angels motorcycle gang is roaring across California. You try to get a clear picture of these outlaws, but you can't tell if the vehicle has two wheels, four or eight. You must be experiencing double vision. I'm here this week with Sonia Mann, who is involved in indie publishing with a sort of sizable Twitter presence around the fringes of the tech industry, interested in how and why people organize themselves in the way that they do, coupled with this sort of aesthetic of whimsy and wonder, rabbits and so on. She runs a website, Sonia Supposedly, and through there she sends out a monthly zine. Uh, Today we're talking about Bonnie and Clyde, the film from August 1967, coupled with Hunter S. Thompson's first book, Hell's Angels, The Strange and Terrifying Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. And so Sonia recently read the book, and so... I'm going to let her sort of introduce that, what sort of drew her to that. Uh, well, Tim um, suggested or, you know, gave me the, the concept of this sort of comparing and contrasting two works from a specific year and looking about what they what they show about the time and the evolution of our culture. Uh, so I was looking through things that I'd read recently and um, trying to just Google movies that I liked and see if I could find a pair. Um, And I did. I was actually really thrilled because I think that uh, Bonnie and Clyde and Hell's Angels actually do um, treat with some of the same themes. Um, There's this whole outlaw culture, um, breaking away from the mainstream, mainstream, defining yourself in opposition to the mainstream which has uh, an interesting inherent tension where you're trying to uh, or or embracing a different set of mores uh, in terms of what's acceptable and and what's what's glorified. Uh, But you're always uh, you're always have that touch point of like, what is the mainstream acceptable and sort of as an outlaw, there is no like your identity is being the breakaway, um, which is independent, but not at the same time. Right. And and these are, are notably both, uh, in contrast to I think most things I'll be doing, have a non-fictional element. So the film is drawn from two actual people, Bonnie and Clyde, though, of course, very reworked into sort of thrilling film, sort of glamorizing it into romanticized portrait. And the the book is this, this sort of dawning of what gets called gonzo journalism or something along those lines, where Thompson is very much a constant presence in this. He's talking about the Hell's Angels, but it's all told through his own sort of encounter with them, which is which is this really sort of interesting dynamic where throughout the book, you see that they are this very sort of outwardly hostile, where they, they have this own internal sense of brotherhood and, and they're, they're, they're out for each other, but everyone else is the sort of enemy and and somehow uh, Hunter is... kind t- of ugly aggressive machismo to the to the hell's angels yeah and and somehow hunter s thompson uh despite their special hate for reporters sort of embeds himself within them for around a year as a sort of freelance writer and is able to put together the, the sort of book and and it's a this, this as sonia was saying you know this this world of outlaws um in both works and setting up in, in this this weird hyper reality that's sort of half sort of media image and then also they themselves responding to the media image and trying to sort of create 
these sort of mediated versions of themselves. Yeah, you see it in, in Bonnie and Clyde. You see them sort of performing for the newsletters, uh, taking taking uh, these photos of themselves. And actually, it's interesting that th- there are multiple layers to this because you have the like within the works, you have the, the representation of the relationship to the media. But then both are also like both Bonnie and Clyde, the movie and Hell's Angels, the book are fairly self-conscious artifacts in terms of how they um, how they were crafted. Uh, and both are highly aestheticized, but in different ways. Like you have this um, stylization in Bonnie and Clyde where like uh, the, the costuming is impeccable, but it's also has this kind of artfully undone aspect to it, which is it's all very intentional, very crafted. Um, and then you have Hell's Angels, which is, as Tim said, has this uh, is this early gonzo, but it's also a very self-conscious uh, presentation because it's all you know in this first-person narrative of Hunter's own experiences with the Hell's Angels. Um, he simultaneously he goes into depth about like you know he ha- he has a lot of derision for like the mainstream press and how they covered the angels and how there's this kind of um, uh, it's like a consensual illusion that both sides create uh, to kind of promulgate to the general public. The outlaws have an interest in a particular image of themselves. The media also has an interest in a particular image. Law enforcement is another player in this like crafting the crafting the artifice that is then going to be uh, sort of reified in its own right, which is um, they, they both are both works. Uh, I was saying to Tim earlier, there's this theme of presentation is uh, presentation and performance is really big in both of them. Yeah, I think it was interesting. So Hunter S. Thompson r- really sort of resents the rest of the sort of press and is constantly sort of jabbing at like, oh, you know, th- this is this big event that they're hyping up but they're getting all of their news through like the telephone where the police are explaining what's happening and they're not just sending a reporter here and then there's a big event and he goes through like eight different newspapers all get like just basic facts radically different and so he's he's giving the sort of on the ground perspective and so it's it's his own little bias take but it is definitely um you know trying to present something of a fair light but then he's also calling the hell's angels losers uh, it's this sort of ultimate take uh but the, this performative aspect is is interesting because in some ways you know they do this sort of intentionally where in big events he, he describes they'll dye their giant beards and bright colors and and have all these sort of piercings and they'll wear capes and, and go in a big motorcycle caravan and you know just sort of cause chaos and, and and try to be this very noticeable mass of human energy and and there's so something kind of camp about the hell's angels like gritty camp you know there's um i mean they they have an element of the ridiculous in them i and i guess any kind of like motorcycle gang aesthetics are it, it's in some ways sort of ridiculous to be you know riding around on this like oily machine that makes a lot of noise wearing like leathers, you know, you're not you're not a fucking hun, you live in the 60s in America, Uh, you're you're a rebel without a cause, but they kind of lean into that. Yeah, there was one element to it that Thompson didn't press on too much, but he kept bringing up how their their basic their lifestyle is founded on this dynamic of like working through the winter 
so that they can be eligible for unemployment through the summer where they just go on sort of rampages through California. And yeah, they're, they're, they're taking on this, this very boisterous image and, and they're very sort of self-conscious about how they're depicted in news and movies and stuff. And so I, I think what they, they imagine in, in keeping Thompson around for so long and, and keeping him so close and inviting him to all these like sort of internal secretive meetings and such is is that they, they I guess probably hope that he would put together a story that gives them uh you know some something really to impress the the nation with in, in some sense where I, I don't think they even would necessarily mind being called losers but they they want to be seen as these sorts of um you know tough outsiders doing their own thing but um it's it's this this really complex line that it that as as Sony, you you were bringing up, you know, it's it's developed in this interesting tension with the police, where they're they're constantly getting into these sort of conflicts. But they're they're th- always having to pay bail or like bail people out or like spend a night in the drunk tank or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of like in and out of the system interactions. Yeah, and 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 there's this one big point in the sort of center of the book, this uh this big event that basically they get sort of cordoned off like way away from everyone else and there's like basically no major arrests or anything that happens and it actually ends up being this this huge bummer for them where they, you know they they want to be the ones who are making national headlines as starting riots and causing havoc and getting arrested and and so on and so obviously the, you know having to pay bail all the time is this huge cost and and then such but that's sort of as thompson presents it the sort of goal where they they want to be you know the sort of public enemy and that's the, the same thing with with bonnie and clyde is obviously that they want to get a lot of money but there there's this interesting dynamic where clyde is presented as having this sort of he, he needs to really present himself as this successful criminal to Bonnie and Bonnie you know also tries to look tough for him as well there's there's a lot of sort of humorous moments uh like at the beginning one of their first jobs is they go to this bank and he's trying to rob it and the teller is like oh well we failed three weeks ago and he's sort of just <laughs> sorting paperwork and he he takes the the teller by gunpoint out to the car and he's like you gotta explain to my woman what happened here so i don't come out empty-handed and it's just this sort of absurd thing and then the, the next thing is is he's robbing this grocery store for groceries he's not even getting money out of it he's just trying to get like basic food so they could survive and and so there there's the this larger-than-life image propped up by the media that it, that is sort of at odds with with some of the reality. Uh, though Thompson says that in some ways the reality is worse than what, what the media said. Mm. But in other, it's it's worse, but it's more sordid. It's more grimy, like less uh, less dramatic. Um, dramatic in a sort of theater sense, like it's less you know, the perfectly crafted beat. I wanted to, I, so I was thinking about when you were talking about Clyde kind of like not necessarily living up to the image that he wants to. I was thinking about libidinal energy 
and how um, I almost want to say that the the angels are like more successful as a channel for their own libidinal energy than Bonnie and Clyde are for theirs. Like Bonnie and Clyde have this, I, they accumulate some hangers on who annoy them and, um, you know, Clyde's relatives. And, but they, as you mentioned, they have this kind of like escalating feedback loop in their own relationship where they kind of, there's tension between them, like erotic tension, but also just kind of both wanting there's a lot of there's a lot of like frustrated desire I think in Bonnie and Clyde maybe also in in Hell's Angels but I feel like the Hell's Angels get there um, <laughs> trying to think of a non vulgar way to say this I say, I guess they they kind of get their climax to a greater degree or maybe the climax of Bonnie and Clyde is the very end when they all you know they get massacred or massacre sounds kind of judgmenty when they get shot <laughs> right and part of the feedback is Bonnie and Clyde get deeper and deeper into it where eventually they have nowhere to go back to. There's a sort of emotional scene where Bonnie is missing her family, and so they go back to meet the mother, and, and you know, there's all these sort of people around in the extended family, and they're like, w- w- what if we get a house, like, nearby? And the mother's like, no, I don't want you anywhere anywhere near here. And, and also, you can't do that because you have to keep moving forever or you'll die. Which, which is basically so that's what what does end up happening. And there's there's a similar thing with the Hell's Angels where they need to prove themselves through criminality. And there's one point where Thompson talks about one chapter is is maybe a little more lenient. And there's a sort of uh, big guy in there who, if he tried to go to Oakland and join that chapter, they basically wouldn't let him do it unless he went out and committed a very major felony. And, and and so basically there's this dynamic where it's like you have to put yourself in a position where being Hell's Angel is sort of your only option, even for people on the sort of periphery where they have, you know, these women who kind of circulate around within within the Hell's Angels or similar outlaw motorcycle gangs. And he talks about how some of them will get tattoos and how it's this major commitment, because obviously, if you do that, and then you try to leave and sort of get married and so on, it's going to be this this wild shock all of a sudden on the wedding night when you just have this property of Hell's Angels or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a great line in Hell's Angels, which is a man who has blown all his options can't afford the luxury of changing his ways. And that also very much uh, that sentiment applies to Bonnie and Clyde as well. And the people who they kind of suck into their orbit. Um, although it's interestingly, it's interestingly both true and not true. Like a man who has blown all his options can't afford the luxury of changing his ways. Well, a man who's blown all his options is also, you know, that's, that's kind of the point when you are forced to change your ways is when you are, have locked yourself, um, or have like backed yourself into a corner. And that's kind of the apotheosis is like, do you transform and, you know, change into something else or do you accept destruction rather than uh transformation is also a kind of destruction right like if you change your persona or whatever you're currently your current performance your current role if you change that that's a kind of death of that role uh so some people and this is the 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 finish of bonnie and clyde is like they accept this rather than changing out of their um, you know, rather than like going to turn themselves into the police or something, they go out in this blaze of glory kind of shootout. And I, I guess 
Hell's Angels has various, like, various trajectories for the angels. Some of them just kind of peter out or, like, age out, and uh, some of them don't. Some of them die, even. Like, you mentioned that that's uh, one of the, the op- like, the opening is this kind of the postmortem of one of those blazing out experiences. Yeah, there's a quote that appears in the Thompson book from Paradise Lost that it's it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. And, and Bonnie and Clyde presents a sort of similar thing where eventually Bonnie writes this sort of song about Clyde and talks about how, you know, they, they kept taking him down, locking him up in a cell till he said to me, I'll never be free. So I'll meet a few of them in hell. And so the, the starting point is he's gotten out of jail. And, you know, the, the film is actually, so it's period piece set in, during the Great Depression. There's a lot of sort of poverty seen throughout the film, which is, which is part of the premise of like the failed bank they go to first. And then the um, Hells Angels is set during the 1960s. But you see some of the legacy of this, of the sort of intergenerational sort of economic thing where, you know, that they basically, they come from families that don't really have much. And so rather than trying to sort of transform and, and sort of seek out higher, they just sort of dig in and commit themselves fully to this life in a way where they can't, they can't back out. They can only sort of just sort of indulge deeper and deeper in, in this world. But there's this fantasy that Clyde presents to Bonnie at the beginning of the film where he says, you deserve so much more and paints this image of her wearing silk in this nice hotel and how even that's not enough and they're going to rob all these banks and get rich and sort of live this life of luxury. And yet as they go along and they don't even really succeed very much at all, but as they go along, it's clearly that's that's never going to be an option and and that all they can sort of really do is sort of make their way from one hideout to another. They do succeed in kind of instigating and cultivating their legend, which is like, it's it's a big part of what the movie is about, but then it's also why the movie exists at all, right? Is because they did, uh, the historical figures who it's based on actually did inculcate a legend that, that kind of culturally persisted. Uh, and then you get it sort of rolled forward by this movie, which it's a very fashionable movie, you know, like it's it's all very beautiful. Um, and that I, that too is kind of a contrast between how well they embody this image just superficially versus how well they uh, how well that it actually plays out in their day to day lives. Yeah, they're very sort of self conscious about that. And you know, the the song I mentioned from from Bonnie is something which is like oh, I should send this to one of the papers and such. And it's it's not even this like intimate moment. It's always framed throughout this idea of oh they're going to be talking about us. And so there's there's the economics of it but there's also this fascination with the outlaw image where it's not just about getting money through robbing banks but it provides this weird sort of status that in in both cases they find aspirational and in at the end of hell's angels thompson talks about how you know they're losers but they themselves will recognize that there is you know millions of losers throughout America, and any one of them will pay all of their money to live just one day as the kind of losers that Hell's Angels are, with that the level of sort of brutality and force and, and, and so on, which is I think partly their own projection that they choose this and they think highly of it. But there's this sense of, um, you know, the outlaw as, as, as its own sort of success. Yeah, it's a uh outside of the system, in opposition to the system, and yet still longing for the recognition of the system, which is kind of, I guess, it's part of the beautiful tragedy of it. Uh, 
And I wonder if you could argue that Thompson himself kind of embodies this archetype also with the, the gonzo journalism thing. I'm actually, I am personally not sure how much of a reliable narrator he is. Uh, like he mentions pulling out his tape recorder a bunch of times, but I don't know. It's hard to tell how much of it is based on like notes and meticulous documentation and how much of it is just his own kind of embellished recollection of his hijinks with the Hells Angels. Do you have a do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. So I mean, something I thought of was he talks about how, you know, the Hells Angels are feeding into this, this demand within the media for sort of sensational stories about them and that they sort of want to do something crazy that gives people something to talk about. And so it seems like Thompson is himself feeding into that desire for sensationalism. And so obviously he's not going to tell the story about this sort of boring day-to-day, but he's going to tell about, you know, the, the, the riots and the exciting things and the sort of tension building up and sort of comic mischief and, and non-comic mischief, very quite tragic, felonious, immoral encounters. And so, yes, yeah, so the, the style of it is, it's like littered with quotes and they're like sort of interweaved into the narrative where, you know, sometimes it's it's not really clear that it's someone else saying something until you get a few sentences down and it's like said such and such person. And so he's interweaving quotes from Hells Angels and police and media and and in some cases sort of, um, you know, films and poetry and, and so on. But he, he's... And- he has his own his own ethos also. Like in particular, when he talks about the uh, the like rape, the alleged anyway rape incidents, and like the degree to which they did or didn't happen, in his opinion, he offers up this. I, this is a quote that I saved. Women are terrified of being raped, but somewhere in the back of every womb, there is one rebellious nerve end that tingles with curiosity whenever the word is en- mentioned. This is even more terrifying, for it hints at basic depravity and secret less too dangerous to even think about um which I, I think it's funny how well this exact sentiment is echoed in kind of modern like manosphere the red pill kind of uh worldviews um but i i think that kind of gives a taste of the degree to which thompson himself is kind of he has a, a little bit of an outlaw persona and a little bit of like that sort of machismo that like a uh, chauvinism that the hell's angels themselves embody like he definitely identifies with them to a degree. I mean, he talks about that to some extent also. Right, yeah. So it, within the Hells Angels, there is this this element of intentionally provocative edginess that, that has some resonances today. And, you know, they'll, they'll still have, you know, swastikas and iron crosses and so on. And, and will, you know, say that it's basically this way of distinguishing themselves from normal, polite society, what you might now call normies. Uh, and <laughs> and so Thompson himself stylistically is caught up in in trying to write, you know, about this in what is a candid way, but also th- through that is is somewhat of an, an edgy way where you know it's it's not he's not trying to clean it up or moralize which is the sort of work of, you know, the Times and the New York Times and the Post and whatever else. But he's he's trying to, you know, just sort of give this like really real on the ground look at the everything that happens, the buildup, the reasoning, the people involved. And so, yeah, so he's I think I think he really revels in giving those sorts of um, counter moralistic accounts of how how this all sort of 
plays out. Yeah, I would say his, like Thompson's aesthetic is like rawness. And what's interesting to me anyway, is that it is still an aesthetic. It's still its own performance. Um, You know, it's not really an unfiltered view because that's not, it's not something you can do with a book. It's just not possible to actually replicate like firsthand experience. And I'm, I'm not saying this to like detract from Thompson. I thought it was a good book. I really enjoyed it. But it's, it's something that's kind of, I think, well, I think he knows it too. Like he knows that, that he's putting on an act. At least I think he does. I don't know. It's hard to say for sure. Um, something that you mentioned when we were talking about what we were going to talk about that I thought was interesting was the when the Hells Angels get to do a bunch of LSD with these kind of like 60s counterculture luminaries, which is a weird like clash of worlds where you have the kind of effete uh like writerly types um, who are, you know, have this kind of, it's in LA, right? Like they have a mansion in LA. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. They end up, you know, sort of culmination of the book is, is they end up doing parties in Ken Kesey's house and like in this sort of beat world and running into the sort of anti-war protests and such. Which uh, kind of clashes with the politics of the angels, such as they are. Uh, Like at one point, um, (laughs) uh, Thompson writes, The angels, like all other motorcycle outlaws, are rigidly anti-communist. Their political views are limited to the same kind of retrograde patriotism that motivates the John Birch Society, the Ku Klux Klan, and the American Nazi Party. They are blind to the irony of their role, night errants of a faith from which they have already been excommunicated. The angels will be among the first to be locked up or croaked if the politicians they think they agree with ever come to power. And this is another commentary on artifice, right? Like the, the angels' politics, at least as Thompson tells it, are almost like a they're 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 like patches on their vests or something. You know, they're not they're they're politics as as like shield or as like armor, but a kind of display armor, not so much uh, what you would actually use to joust with, I guess. Um, and which I don't know, I just. It's, it's interesting and it's interesting how that kind of you know once there's the once there's the prospect of getting free drugs any kind of political clash is just sort of irrelevant yeah there, there's this fundamental tension between them and this emergence of a new counterculture and you know they're sort of at odds with this idea of you know sort of passive resistance anti-war stuff which is sort of against their sense of raw energy and violence and you know the sort of well, Thompson, Thompson suggests that ultimately, you know, they try to say that the the swastikas and stuff are like just for a sort of show and and to keep people sort of at a distance, but that that they do ultimately have some level of, of uh, fascistic sort of impulse, and they risk losing a sort of cultural prominence. You also see through the sort of you know prominent cultural position of Bonnie and Clyde with the emergence of this new counterculture and the beats and so on. And, and so there's, you know, throughout the book, you get these sort of clashes with other motorcycle gangs where they have mildly different sort of standards and policies. And they're just sort of just they just happen to be a different group from a different place. And and this is like a, a, a whole radically different sort of challenge to them where it's like this idea of the outlaw that they're sort of upholding and that's being romanticized around the same time with Bonnie and Clyde is maybe sort of on the way out culturally. And that that's the sort of biggest threat of all to them. Something that uh, through whatever jump of the brain, that makes me think about how 
this is so at least as Thompson depicts the angels, this is they uh, there's an element of organized crime to them, but they're very much not like a well-oiled criminal outfit. Um, this is not, you know, sort of like drug running is still not hyper developed and kind of the competitive pressures that later turn hell's angels and some of the other motorcycle gangs into like legitimate <laughs> legitimate's not the right word into like successful illegal gangs that are you know doing weapons dealing that kind of thing that comes later at least it seems so um if at this stage of the development of the group they're still kind of like chaotic and uh they don't, they're not, they're not necessarily great at pulling off like heists. Uh, and you see the same thing with Bonnie and Clyde where like they have, um, they have the bravado, they have the willingness to transgress, but they're not like that great at actually setting up their, their stings or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's kind of, they're, they're, they're great at embodying the, the, they're great at the performance aspect of it, like the aesthetic of it. Uh, but they're not actually, as you mentioned earlier, all that criminally successful. Yeah, th- there's there's a very brief mention in the book about some some Hell's Angels smuggling drugs in from Mexico, but it's not really it doesn't really seem like wide structural thing. The group is very you know just sort of distributed and so on. Although also what Thompson emphasizes at several points is that the media likes to pretend that they're much bigger and more widespread than they are because it makes the stories more exciting and that actually there's very few of them but um it is oh just to cut in for a second which is kind of directly mirrored with how our current media deals with groups like the proud boys which is you know they're it's way less of a thing than it's made out to be right but anyway go on (laughs) right that they they want to pretend there's like you know 30 million of them but it's actually more like like a hundred in each major metropolitan area or something it's like very insignificant in the grand scheme of things yeah but so in bonnie and clyde there's this weird ensemble that gets increasingly sort of silly and not this serious criminal sort of mastermind idea where you know so it starts out with the two of them and then they bring in cw moss who was the sort of mechanic that like you know they just happen to be like hey you know you want to join us and he's like okay uh and then they bring in his brother and you know sort of incidentally begrudgingly his wife as well comes along and then there's at one point they they kidnap uh gene wilder and gene wilder's (laughs) wife and they're they're and they're even sort of less uh on board but they're with them at this moment where they sort of get this encounter with um the, the this texas ranger character who you know they they end up sort of tying up and humiliating and um you know but they take like pictures with him as if he's like one of their friends and and like bonnie kisses him in, in one of the pictures to like show that they're super close and they sort of kick him off in a boat while he's still tied up i, I had this like inherent sense of anxiety like oh man they just like killed that man but they did not but the, the, yeah but there's a real sort of they will they leave him to tell the tale right there's a real sort of comic element to the, the sort of flow of the story where their job are in some ways getting more serious more serious where they start eventually actually getting in some money but they're they're building up this 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 gang of sorts that's very different from from how that sort of hell's angels like to depict themselves it's like this complete opposite it's just these very normal people who want nothing to do with this but just sort of happen to sort of accumulate in this ball around bonnie and clyde 
Yeah, there's a farcical quality to it. And it's like they use the they use their sort of sheer charisma and then their willingness to transgress to like build up uh, the entourage that they have and to, you know, do these kind of for their own amusement, they're going to pull someone in and then push them back out again. And that's I, that's where their their exercise of power like works the best is in arranging these kind of it's almost like a tableau that they put together for themselves. Oh, yeah. It's... But then it, it also also backfires eventually well actually it's something interesting is in the film there's there there it shows how they're they're actually fairly sympathetic at many points you know there's there's one scene early on where they're holed up in this foreclosed house and the former owner comes by and they sort of make friends where like they give him their gun and let him like blast out the windows and shoot the sign with the bank's name on it and there's a point where they rob a bank and they they take the bank's money but some they ask someone is that your money and he's like yeah he's like all right then keep that and the police are interviewing him and he's saying you know i'll go to their funeral they they were great and 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 so the set because the setting here is the great depression so you have all these sort of poor people who are sort of let down by the banks and so they have the resentment where they don't really care that Bonnie and Clyde are going around robbing these banks and there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of Hell's Angels I forgot about where it's not just these sort of peaceful anti-war protesters in this new counterculture but that the police find that they've been hyping up the Hell's Angels so much as as being rowdy but actually they're finding like the the youth uh, at this time even like worse where you have people people blocking firefighters and like stomping on a baby and uh, all this crazy stuff starts coming up at the end uh, and and there's this sense that um that uh basically the the hell's angels are sort of just this um you you brought up this quote that they're the first wave of a future that nothing in our history has prepared us to cope with yes um i like the a destructive cult which the mass media insists on portraying as a sort of isolated oddity, a temporary phenomenon that will shortly become extinct now that it's been called to the attention of the police. Um, but uh, as, as you were saying, oh, I really liked what you brought up that the uh, the Hell's Angels are proto-cyborgs and that they're this like very uh, raw and kind of just like crudely grafted together man-machine that then becomes almost like the kind of a dominant archetype. I, I keep thinking of uh, futurism, actually, like futurism, the uh, the art movement that's tied to like Italian fascism, that like gotta go fast energy. All right, yeah, I didn't consider that. But there, I think there's, there's something of that where it's like obviously none of the the hell's angels would you know really get that and there's there's something in the book i forget what it is but thompson tries to explain their problem with the beats and their anti sort of communist attitudes that there's like a level at which what they're critiquing is actually you know like the middle class and and these terms that they themselves would never think to use but yeah so, so they're these sort of man machine hybrids where like the you know the motorcycles are a key part of them and yeah this idea of speed and and so on uh but then they're also as thompson mentions they're left out of this emerging highly technical economy that mm-hmm. that you know they they have their their limited fascination with these machines but as the te- the society at large grows sort of more deeply technical they don't really want to make that jump that's a big sort of sticking point this makes me think of how like bonnie and clyde have this kind of you know this like affectation of a sort of robin hood 
you know, as you were saying, they're, they're in opposition to the banks. But that, I mean, that is kind of just another act. Like they don't really, <laughs> that's not really what's motivating them, nor is it like a particularly big part of their overall program if you want to call it a program. And it's like in both, I keep circling back to both of them, like the, the outlaw position, the outlaw archetype is, it can only exist in juxtaposition to all that it opposes. Like you can't be an outlaw without a, you know, a society that we otherwise live in to rebel against. Like you can't, uh, you, it's, hmm, I don't know. Does that make sense? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, they 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 need um they need to have some sort of enemy that is is sort of justified, and they run into problems at the end of the book where they start coming into conflict with these sorts of political energies that there's only like three or four people in the group that really understand what any of them are talking about, but they basically sort of all just go along with it. But early on, it's just this simplistic sense of, you know, they're, they're, there's this surrounding context that's very distinct from Bonnie and Clyde, the surrounding con- context of a relatively well-off California world where they move around sort of nice farms in the Bay Area and they their animosity is directed toward this sort of polite society and, and but they also they feed off of it like they get drawn back to, to like engage with the system with the mainstream because it's their source of like resources uh and Bonnie and Clyde are like that also like they get drawn back in over and over again because that's where like their their energy is ultimately drawn off of the system and without it they don't have um they don't have that source of I guess I would go back to like libidinal energy <laughs> right yeah so the, the one of the big parts at the center of the book is this big celebration that gets sort of brought up onto this mountain and and there's this you know basically thing that happens where once they don't have that society to like run into conflict with it ends up just being this terrible experience where people are sort of just like taking pills to try to stay up just just because uh you know they they have to create these sort of rituals where it's like oh if you don't stay up you know someone's going to do some terrible thing to you like within the hell's angels policing themselves that you know there's there's no particular reason it's just you have to do it and most people are really in the sort of despair you know that they're they're used to engaging with sort of young women from the area but they're they basically the police say you have to leave by this point or you know you're staying the night and so like most people leave and then it's sort of just them and it's 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 ends up being such a a real downer yeah it doesn't it doesn't live up to their expectations it they they sometimes fail to live up to their own hype which is i think it's almost disillusioning right like you need to sort of mask it with drugs so that you don't uh realize how pathetic you are as an angel in that situation yeah, and it's it's run in, in contrast to the sort of big event toward the beginning of the book which is this sort of situation on the beach where they they get their initial big national media reputation where they like to present it as, oh, they just want to sort of be off by themselves on the sort of outskirts of this town. And it just sort of just so happens that, you know, people show up 
to, you know, interact with them and, and so on, and they can't help that. But yeah, so they thrive on that. And then especially once the media gets involved, they end up really loving how they're depicted as these sorts of outlaw figures that they want to be. And it ends up, you know, sort of growing from there where they they want to be those figures. And it, it ends on this sort of, there's this comical image in the, like the last chapter or two where the leader of one of the big chapters of Hell's Angels is giving like a press conference and there's like 12 cameras and like 40 microphones in front of him. And so that they want to present themselves as these sort of outlaws on the outskirts of society, you know, at odds with polite society and the sort of major New York press and so on. But, you know, but they also really want to be, you know, seen by all of those groups. There's something that runs through both works, or at least that comes up in both of them, is this like conflict as catharsis. You get like the buildup of tension and mutual animosity that is then kind of uh, culminates and flares up and dissolves in at some kind of like conflict that is, uh, it's like almost like a pitched battle, not quite. It's a little more organic than that. Um, it's like uh, it's like two partners dancing and building up to like a very dramatic dip at the end of the dance. Um, and you see that it comes up with the the angels and how they engage with the press, how they engage with law enforcement, how they engage with the mainstream, and likewise with Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, and th- it makes me think about sort of like Girardian scapegoat notions that people have been talking about a lot lately. How um, you know that we've been discussing how the outlaws need the mainstream and how they need to um, be able to have a relationship with the kind of the system of society, even as they oppose it. Uh, and I think that vice versa is also true that like society, we live in a society, as you know, uh, and it produces its discon- its malcontents, but it also um, is fascinated by them. It kind of feeds off of them in return. There's like an exchange of energy that takes place between the, the dissidents and the normative. Right. And to go back to an earlier point, you know, so this is also Thompson making his own career off of presenting this world to, you know, a sort of mass audience published with the sort of major press, uh, giving this sort of extensive look into this world. And, and then so at the same time, you have Bonnie and Clyde as this major Hollywood film presenting the sort of outlaw dynamic as well. Uh, and and so it's it's becoming there's this really sort of mainstream, you know, countercultural energy that's emerging at the time that is, you know, really at odds with what you would sort of want it to be, which is, you know, this truly sort of a uh, fringe, you know, world. Counterculture itself becomes a commodity that is, you know, traded uh, alongside all the others. And then, so there's there's also something you brought up, which is the um, this, this sense uh, of masculinity where in the film, Clyde mentions, you know, early on that he's not much of a lover boy and, and you know, there, there's this frequent sort of failed attempts to do stuff with Bonnie. And yeah, he has moments of impotence. Yeah. In a literal sense. Yeah. And and so all all he can do is through this sort of criminal behavior present this sort of masculine image. And then there's 
Thompson presents sort of interesting similar things with the Hell's Angels where this really sort of aggressive sexuality coupled with this sort of strong sense of brotherhood, which includes these dynamics of wildly kissing each other for show in front of people to sort of put them off. There's a there's a Thompson line uh, that I saved, which is the vanity of the many swamped by the discretion of the few. Um, and actually, I only saved this snippet, so I don't even know what like the larger sentence was that this phrase was in. Um, but I, it's like the the ability to disrupt is always the like the individual's prerogative. There's a, there's like an asymmetric warfare in it, like to shock, to uh, to destroy. There's um, that's that's always something that's open to the you know those who define themselves in opposition you can always tear down you can always um create upheaval right and and i think you know at the in the end thompson i think aligns maybe a little too closely with the beats in opposition to the hell's angels and suggests that despite all this sense about brotherhood and camaraderie when ellen ginsburg says to the sort of leader of this hell's angels chapter that he loves him he's like thrown for this loop and has no idea what to do or say um (laughs) but but i i do think this goes back to this idea where you know he's the sort of central character in this narrative and he's presenting you know his own story as much as he is theirs Mm -hmm. and and so it builds up to this conflict with you know the sort of beats and sort of late 60s counterculture uh but but there is a sense about you know Thompson partly identifies with some elements of, of this sort of Hell's Angels group, but ultimately, I think he, he finds more in these sorts of other groups that are emerging. And, and that's, I think, is, is sort of part of how it sort of en- just sort of ends up unfolding. I think Thompson has a little bit of, I think he has a little bit of a nose for fashion or for, fashion's not the right word, for up and comingness, I guess. Like he, he does this kind of close examination of the Hell's Angels and he he determines that they they represent a type that is uh, really has like burg- is burgeoning, um, but that they themselves like the particular instantiation of that type. He doesn't see a, like a, a future in them. Certainly not for himself. Right, and and so yeah, so there's like there's oh sorry, go ahead. I was um, no, you go ahead. Uh, I wanted to read another quote, which was this is fairly early on. I think he's first meeting some of the angels. Uh, so this is Thompson uh, saying, by this time, Sonny had introduced me to Lewis and some of the others. He's a writer, Barger said with a smile. God only knows what he's writing, but he's good people. Lewis nodded and shook hands with me. How you making it, he said. If Sonny says you're okay with him, you're okay with us. He said it with such a wide smile that he thought he was going to laugh. Then he clapped me on the shoulder in a quick, friendly sort of way, as if to make sure I understood that he'd pegged me for an arch con man, but that he wasn't going to ruin the joke by letting Sonny in on it. And I think Lewis is actually kind of correct here in his assessment, or his imputed assessment of Thompson, that Thompson is kind of assuming, uh, which is that he is going to... You like, as he said, kind of use the angels to make his own reputation. That he's going to, it, it's almost like alchemical that he's going to take their outlaw energy and use it to uh, cement his own place in the establishment or in the kind of the establishment side of the counterculture or something like the monetizable version of it. Right. Yeah. So he's, he's spending the whole book parsing out 
all the really cool and exciting elements of Hells Angels from all the sort of morally detestable parts and saying that there's this core energy that's going to have this this lasting cultural lineage uh, that's not them themselves, but that, you know, maybe he can be a part of or, you know, at least sort of follow along tightly. And and, and Thompson kind of perpetuates his hypothesis by writing about them. Like he, uh, he helps to craft and cement the legend of the Hells Angels like even as he decries how they're depicted by the mainstream press, he uh, is is perpetuating that same image. He's just presenting a sort of raw, like quote unquote raw flavor of the same product. Right. Yeah. So he he's um... like if you compare Thompson's depiction of this kind of outlaw outlaw culture to the the Hollywood glamour of Bonnie and Clyde, there's like very different way of um, kind of presenting the same thing which is you can be outside the mainstream um and this is this is what this sort of destructive but glorious cycle looks like right and there's this very overt violence in bonnie and clyde i i remembered reading online that this suggestion that it was sort of this turning point in hollywood towards showing more sort of bloody violence and you know i expected to like go back and see a film from the 1960s from present perspective and find it like kind of childish and simple in that regard but there's the the scene early on where they shoot the bank manager in the face and there's the the sort of end where they're sort of shredded that you know it it is actually sort of quite not exactly gory but there's uh there's definitely a visceral maybe yeah yeah like they show the bodies you know like twitching and lurching as they're peppered by bullets yeah and and so it it gives this sense of of, you know this limited lifespan to this this lifestyle but the there's the sort of meta element of it that the appeal of the film the mass appeal of the film and and it's had this major sort of cultural lineage is that there is this desire for these outlaw narratives and these sorts of folklorish figures of Bonnie and Clyde and so on. And so there's this, in both, there's this interesting way of taking these sorts of real stories and then extracting the the sort of thrilling core of it and making it one's own. I gotta wonder what Freud would make of these. Like, would he see the, the, it as a sort of like orgasm of death, like death drive kind of uh, manifestation of that of that desire? I don't know enough about Freud to be sure. That's what the that's what the crafted media image of Freud would think. There's this definite sense through the way Thompson presents the Hell's Angels that their sort of sense of absolute violence and fearlessness is maybe something along those lines. When I was reading about the sort of real life Bonnie and Clyde, it was suggested that they always sort of imagined that they would inevitably, you know, be killed off, that it was was inevitable. And I thought in the film, they really depict them as not expecting that. And it sort of takes them by surprise that they keep sort of expecting that somehow they'll sort of break free and have this shift into some sort of greater freedom. Yeah, and it doesn't end up working out. It's like they, they're, only, they're only able to find this kind of provisional freedom where they're always on the run and are constrained by that. 
um, that that in itself turns out to be a sort of it's like a prison in motion. Yeah, but there there is this temporary freedom within that in some sense where you know you see this impoverished world where people are losing their homes and so on, and so they're living in pretty rundown places. They're kind of scraping by, but you know at least they they find some sense of home and family in this sort of weird way and and that's the same sort of thing with hell's angels is they craft for themselves this vast extended family that you know it has this sort of ride or die sensibility and it, i mean it gives them a way to live high on the hog uh pun intended um, outside of their outside of their normal class structures, like in both cases, um, you know, the Hell's Angels are not the Hell's Angels and Bonnie and Clyde. Neither uh, group is is you know like particularly high class, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, and so the kind of, like they don't get to ha- go to any like Gatsby style parties, you know, and especially in the context of the Great Depression. Like this is a way to be extravagant that they might not have access to otherwise. Right. Yeah. They get they get to sort of fake being these sorts of well off gangsters in a way where even if they don't quite make it, they get to sort of just like pretend it. There's there's a weird um. They get to indulge in excess. Yeah. There's the highly sort of an aesthetic sort of ending to the the book Hell's Angels where all of a sudden Thompson sort of is just talking about himself and how this this scene where he goes off on this motorcycle ride at night and really sort of just going deep into the feeling of absolute freedom in the moment of just sort of speeding down this night road on this motorcycle going faster and faster just nearing this edge at which you know there's there's a certain point at which you can't handle it and you'll sort of die and and this this thrill of just sort of skirting that edge and mm-hmm. he, through that he understands some of the the drive of the hell's angels but i thought i thought it was interesting where there's no other passage like that throughout the book but in the very end all of a sudden he brings it to himself and what he sort of like his personal epiphany from it all I feel like he kind of uses that he uses that moment to express like if it's not genuinely dangerous it's not thrilling like if if there's nothing really at risk if you're not actually endangering your life and limb then you're not a badass kind of uh it's like if that is the price of that feeling right and and that's i guess how bonnie and clyde starts out where they're in town and he shows her he has the gun and she's like oh but but you won't actually do anything with it and so he has to go into the store and like steal like a few dollars or something you know where it's like there's the image but there also has to be some truth to it so we were talking earlier about how they exist in the sort of tension between the sort of police and the, the media and stuff and they want to hype up this image of them as outlaws but they there there is always some core reality they have to upkeep and so there's like the terrible like you know fact of constantly being arrested and having to pay bail and so on but without that they wouldn't actually be outlaws they would just sort of you know be losers sort of causing a muck among themselves yeah like in a real sort of barbarian society they'd be the bottom rung but um and transgression as a source of power um 
and as a transgression, as a means of altering social reality that in a way that affords you status that wouldn't be available if you weren't willing to transgress and willing to sort of accept the penalties because the power that you get from it is, you know, considered worth it, or at least feels worth the price in the moment. Because there's something there's something sort of inarguable about uh, a bank robber, right? Like no one's, you know, if you come with a gun uh, and say, hand over all the money, um, you know, maybe the bank has failed, but you're not going to get a kind of, you're you're not really going to get looked down on, say. You're not going to have someone thinking that you're not a big man, right? Because you're the one with all the authority when in that situation that you've created for yourself and um like that clyde's manhood and his struggles with his own manhood like the there's definitely a phallic gun element of bonnie and clyde just like there's a phallic motorcycle element of the hell's angels there's the scene based on sort of real life uh, of bonnie taking the photo with the cigar and the gun by the car uh where a sort of like even she sort of gets caught up in the, the sort of image somewhat playfully and and Clyde is like taking the picture and he's like telling her to smile and stuff and she's like really insistent on like putting on the sort of tough image and and so it's this sort of nice scene where it's, it sort of just shows how put on it is in some way but but you're right there you know there is this absolute reality where it's like when you're in the bank with the gun taking actual money you know it's all very real and the other the power you have in that moment is very real yeah you've imbued yourself with the authority to give orders and be listened to and and it's at this moment where, you know, it's seemingly like the capacity for the individual to do that seems to be increasingly fading away. And so that's that's the sort of future that Thompson is seeing. And at least as he presents it, the Hells Angels themselves don't really sort of seem to have that sort of foresight. But as as this writer figure, you know, he gets to see the bigger picture. And so he sees that, you know, the the sort of freedom that the Hells Angels enjoy right now is going to sort of get increasingly clamped down on and but but that that energy is going to have to go somewhere basically there's mass society i think is much more present as a theme in hell's angels like you see kind of the precursors of it uh happening in bonnie and clyde which is you know it's a look it's a period piece it's a look back into say 30-ish years ago maybe more like 40 years ago because i think it was 67 that these both came out um and uh you have you have the beginnings of this media hyper reality that's running through the headlines uh and then hell's angels is after the events of it are after you know several decades of tv right um although you know you don't get quite the like cable tv 24-hour news cycle yet as far as i recall i might be getting the timing there a little wrong but over the course of you know the last century which it was a little more than midway through when these works come out just kind of grappling with the emergence of a national mass society and it's feelings about itself it's like engagement with the archetypes that make it up so th- there's this development in both works of these sort of folklorish american folklorish figures uh that that's in both cases somewhat self-consciously developed that's something that's really interesting to me is that like this is it's it, these things emerge and evolve organically but there's a substantial it's like organic in the sense that say like now the motorcycle outlaw that's it's something that's created by lots of different works all kind of playing off each other 
but each individual work is very self-conscious um, and is very, very much like, here's a commentary on this thing. Uh, but then together, it's like semi-controlled, I guess. I find that sort of it, like tension between the artificiality and the organic uh, growth of it interesting. Like the American outlaw, uh, these two works were not like coordinated in their contributions to you know, the, the archetype of the American outlaw. Uh, and yet they both have this very sort of studied uh, presentation of the outlaw uh, in, you know, in in its juxtaposition to normative society and particularly in its relationship with the media and law enforcement. Like both works deal with that uh, just because that that is a thing. Like that's a response to what the reality of it is, is to have this be kind of the themes of the commentary. Um, and they're both such different works, but they at the same time have this like thematic resonance with each other. And it's it's all very crafted and yet at the same time organic. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, definitely. Culture, man. Should we look at, you know, the, the 60s as kind of a precursor to our own era of counterculture? How do these works prefigure as Thompson suspects, kind of what's going on now. I think Thompson, you know, as someone who's sort of writing more overtly non-fictional, where like the, the, the film is very sort of deeply embedded in creating a film with like, you know, sort of thrilling film beats and glamorizing this image. The book is very much, you know, a reflection on things and so gives a more overt sense of the sort of underlying ideas. But there, there's something interesting in the film, just in the fact that, you know, it's Bonnie and Clyde. And so it's this sort of inclusive look at this energy, whereas the film or the book rather is entirely focused in on the sort of group of, you know, hyper masculine men acting out sort of among themselves. The there's this the wider dynamic just sort of inherently in the film in giving sort of, you know, the, the two of them together. And I would say that Bonnie goes through more of a transformation than Clyde does. I think. I mean it's debatable. But she kind of she grows into this outlaw figure. She sort of like almost grows more like him. She uh, takes on something of his aspects through their association. Clyde is interesting, though, because he's he's sort of already been through it. He's already done something in the past and gone to prison. And there's a detail that doesn't really like play into like things plot wise, but it's sort of just part of his character where he had like cut off two toes with an axe in, in prison to try to get out of work detail. And there's a schemer bit to that, but it's also this sense of of avoiding work in a way the sense of mm-hmm. that i think is sort of is interesting he's you know he's not just trying to prove himself in a way he has he has a little bit of a con man aspect to him like i that how he reels in bonnie for sure like it's it's actually even a little ambiguous how much he believes his own kind of romantic enchanting tale uh I, I, i'm not sure that the movie really comes down in one way or the other in terms of whether how much does he buy into his own image i guess yeah there, there's an interesting dynamic there where she seems to sort of complete his his outlaw dynamic in this way that is sort of culturally distinct but like he seems to me like immediately sold on this somehow that you know yeah i think you're right that that adding her 
is like a, a piece that falls into place for him. And their, their kind of like mutual devotion is uh, like it sustains things for them. Um, and you almost even wonder, you know, could, could they be together in a sort of white picket fence kind of way? I don't know. I'm not sure that either of them would actually be satisfied with that as much as they like to uh, fantasize about that option. Yeah, they're, they're always, you know, sort of just bouncing along from like sort of beat to beat. And, and that's why like Bonnie being becoming enamored with him in the first place is like predicated on him being uh, this outside the law chaotic element. Right. And and so but she also is in this position where I mean, her drive and this is interesting. And I think he maybe even sort of misunderstands it at many points where his initial pitch is you know, that she's from the sort of fairly poor family and working as a sort of waitress. And he understands how it's unfulfilling. And she, you know, she, she wants something more in life. But, you know, he talks about her being draped in silk in a fancy hotel and all these riches and stuff. Uh, but really, the excitement of it, I think, is part of it. Uh, you know, some of it is, is being completely smitten by him and, and sort of just following along anything he does. But there's a, there's a sense in which it seems like she, you know maybe she doesn't really she wouldn't do it without him but you know she doesn't quite need the it's like well she sticks around even when that oh that dream does not really come to fruition or is only sort of fleetingly available like the you know the luxury part that he promises she stays around even when that's not present or when it's kind of not going well uh like Clyde so Clyde like starts the movie as the man who has blown all his options and can't afford the luxury of changing his ways but she goes into that position she chooses it by engaging with him and sticking with him she kind of converts into the person who blows all their options over the course of the movie like she you know becomes involved she becomes more directly involved with the crimes as the movie goes on wielding the gun herself and everything right and and so there's you know this this absence of that sort of dynamic in the hell's angels book where we see the hell's angels themselves but we don't see you know any any sort of bonnie like figures they have wives and stuff that are sometimes sort of involved in some ways but they're completely sort of outside of the book's narrative even when they're around um mm -hmm. which is interesting and more accessories than characters Right, yeah. And then even at the end, when you get into the new sort of counterculture with the beats and the anti-war stuff, it's it's all Allen Ginsberg, Ken Casey, you know, Neil Cassidy comes up briefly. And, and so you, you see, it's this, this very much sort of world of male outcasts. And, you know, I think one thing that Bonnie and Clyde captures in its legacy is, you know, increasingly the, there is, you know, economic economic opportunities and so on for women but it's, it's it's also this like increasing room for them to fail socially and morally and so on in these ways and there's mm. there's something aspirational in a way with bonnie where it's like you can see yourself in her where Thompson talks about the um, the the Hell's Angels watching this earlier film from the fifties, The Wild One, and like they see themselves in that. And I th I think there's something where later generations acting out different sort of it, not necessarily outlaw, but like outcasty sort of roles. You know that you now have this uh, image of of Bonnie to live up to. Yeah, uh, she's very much uh, an aspirational. Uh, she's so 
beautiful. Like Faye Dunaway is just absolutely stunning in this role. And, you know, the fashion is all very intentional and very like luxe and gorgeous, even when it's um, even when it's kind of like she's just you know, she's just the waitress or whatever. She's still this like absolutely uh, exquisite creature kind of. Um, and yet she has this dangerous edge to her at the same time. She's like a like a hawk or something. That's one of the things that I found that I love so much about this movie is how like alluring and enchanting it is while at the same time, there's this kind of stark violence to it. it. It's the mood. It's like the mood of getting drawn into something that is absolutely a terrible idea, but is nonetheless, uh, you know, it's exciting and beautiful in its um, destruction. Yeah, the, the film builds up very well this sense of, of wanting to be Bonnie and Clyde, and then like, just like completely destroys that. Whereas the, the film, or sort of the book rather, is constantly, you know, just like, they're, they're really not aspirational at all, unless you have happen to already be very much within their their sensibilities. I think Hunter is the aspirational book in the or aspirational character in the book. He's the the go-between and the person who gets to sort of exfiltrate some of the 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 like status of the outlaw in a way that will actually be beneficial to him. Yeah, he he gets to enjoy some of the sort of wild partying and the thrill of the motorcycle riding in a way that's more exciting than the, you know they depict these sorts of mainstream motorcycle clubs that are, are completely lawful. He he gets to go a little beyond that into some of the more thrilling aspects, but he doesn't descend into the sort of um, immoral elements of, of the Hells Angels as he depicts them. At least not that he tells us about. I do wonder, I really wonder how reliable he is. And I always wonder that about any kind of like gonzo journalism or the uh, some of the more like writerly, literary, like new journalism style. And maybe that's kind of that sort of ad to the thrill of reading it as well is that you know things could be left out things could be uh embellished and the nature of the product is that it's hard to tell that ambiguity is itself kind of exciting yeah i mean there's one point toward the end where there's a little like footnote where it's like name removed at instruction of publishers lawyers that is the sort of reminder that anything that he did to sort of build up trust with the, the angels there's no way the lawyers would be like yeah we'll publish your confession <laughs> to that um but w- what you get now maybe is is a little more freedom in that sort of uh reporting where it's like you could i mean there's obviously laws still but there's like less friction in terms terms of what you can sort of just throw out online which is you know in some ways very dangerous because there there are still laws august 1967 outlaws bonnie and clyde loom large on the big screen you try to listen in but there's something else coming down the line in hunter s thompson's first book the hell's angels motorcycle gang is roaring across california you try to get a clear picture of these outlaws but you can't tell if the vehicle has two wheels four or eight you must be experiencing double vision but that that's something where the legacy of this sort of writing is mm. this completely frictionless online, you know, just sort of here's here's the story of me in these wild sorts of situations. Yeah, you might wreck yourself, but you're not required to be respectable. <laughs> have we have people like Hunter to thank for blazing that trail? And uh, we have the the film, I guess, to thank for you know giving giving a uh, aspirational twinge to it all. Yeah, I 
I um, another movie which is kind of the successor to Bonnie and Clyde is Natural Born Killers. It's like an updated uh, version, which I just highly recommend for anyone who's listening and is interested in this kind of outlaw uh, outlaw image and like outlaw as mass media creation theme. I'll definitely check that out myself, and because uh, we we can wrap up on on this sort of outward suggestion. Well, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. It was an interesting discussion, and it was. It was interesting to uh, give more serious thought to these two works. Yeah, thank you for coming on. This is a great discussion. And also, you know, thank you for, for bringing up this suggestion of this topic. 